0: Welcome to this episode of Holiness Talks. In this episode, we want to talk about holiness in Genesis. We're going to be looking at the first few chapters of the book. We'll be focusing our attention on the prologue, which is Genesis 1-11, to but even then, we'll be focusing in a very specific manner on creation, In other words, as we look at Genesis in this episode, we want to look at holiness of creation. Now, let's say this, that any conversation on holiness must necessarily begin with the book of Genesis. Even though we didn't do that, yet we know that at some point we will come back to it. Holiness is a significant subject as we must have seen by now, when we come to the Bible. And without any doubt or any hesitation, the biblical concept of holiness has its earliest expression in the very first book. And we see that Genesis covers a stage in the history of humanity that might be fairly called the patriarchal period, that is, the times of the fathers as related to the priests as well as the prophets who are at that time. The early chapters of Genesis, particularly in chapters 1 to 11, have been subjected to a lot of searching and critical analysis. But then we'll see that these chapters provide for us some theological data of unequaled and unparalleled importance. And it is from these first chapters of the scriptures that we learn of the distinctive nature of the human race, the origins and the enduring effect of sin, and of course the earliest intimate intimations of the covenant keeping God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God who acts in redemptive grace towards a rebellious people. Now let's begin to look at Genesis. And we want to look at Genesis and the creation. Without any doubt, the story of the creation is very important and of a huge significance in any conversation about holiness. And then we'll see that holiness relates to the creation of humankind. But let's begin by looking at Genesis in chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, God himself makes a pronouncement. And he says, let us make Man in our own image, in Genesis chapter one, and that's very significant. We are seen in verse twenty-six. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle." over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then looking at verse 30, in verse 30, 31, rather, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. It was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So here we see God's pronouncement. God says, let us create man in our own image and in our likeness. This is very, very important to look at. Holiness and creation. Holiness the image of God. The key phrase here is what exactly does the image of God mean or what does it entail? Well, we know that at least here we see that humans are made in the image of God and when we talk about the image of God, maybe we can reduce it to a few things. Number one, the moral image of God, that is An image of innocence, holiness, communion with the creator. When we talk about the image of God, we're basically talking about relationship with God. And that's very, very important, relationship with God. And of course, the natural image of God, which includes intellect, imagination, moral, psychological, self-direction, immortality. Now, that's where it stops. We need to understand that even though man is made in the image of God, man is never God. And that's very, very important. We need to bear that in mind. We're created in the image of God. And that image of God and is important. When you look at the creation accounts, the first in Genesis chapter 1 and the second in Genesis chapter 2, Augustine, that great church father, the bishop of Hippo, who shaped Western thought for quite a long time, both in his Catholic and Protestant forms, gave precedence to the first creation account in Genesis chapter one, in which humans are perfect from the outset. So when you look at Genesis chapter one, you see that humans are perfect from the outset. When man was made in the image of God, when Adam and Eve, Our father and our mother were created in the image of God. Of course, you understand that Eve was made in the image. Eve was made out of Adam. That's all right. But then when Adam was created in the image of God, what do we know? Humans are perfect from the outset. And that included Eve. And God said in verse 26 that he wanted to make them. He planned to make humans in his likeness. And what does he do? We're told in verse 27, he did so. And pronounces them to be very good. So what do we understand by that? When it comes to Augustine, he says that likeness to God is a giving in this account. It's not something to aspire to. It is something which is there. It's a given. Of course, when Irenaeus came, he was the second century of the Bishop of Lyons in France. He was originally from Turkey, and he was the one who shaped Greek orthodoxy and uh, the theology by giving pres- precedence to the Grecian second creation account and in which humans were created with the possibility of perfection. So as far as Irenaeus was concerned, holiness was a goal, a goal that was achieved despite the fact that the enemy tempted them. Because in chapter 3, verse 22, after the fall of humanity, God says, look at it. Let's drive man out of the garden. The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In that sense, for Augustine, holiness is a given. And for Irenaeus, holiness was a goal. Now, I don't think we have to quarrel or have to debate so much on whether it should be a fact or a goal. We know from the rest of the scriptures that holiness was both something which is given and something to be aspired to. As we've seen even in the letters of Paul, where he called the people of God saints, and yet they are called to be holy. So holiness is both a fact, is both a given and a goal. But then you see, when humans were created in the image of God, there were privileges, privileges given to humans. Well, one of those privileges was the fact that God spoke to them directly. You could see that in chapter 2, verses 28 to 30. God spoke to them directly. And of course, there was access to the garden to eat everything in the garden, except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And number three, There's the indication of a daily fellowship with God, communion. You see that in chapter three. And we're told that God will come in the cool of the day and fellowship with them. So there was this idea of daily fellowship. Basically, let's sum it up. What exactly was holiness in this case? Holiness in terms of the first humans was relationship. And that is very, very important. But then that's not the end of the story when you read Genesis chapter one, chapters one through 11, we saw the problem of sin. Suddenly, sin enters, and that's where things went wrong. Sin entered, and we know the story of how the serpent came and tempted them. Now, here is something which is important. We need to say this, and very clearly, too, that when you look at Genesis chapter three, sin is an intrusion in human life and nature. Sin is an intrusion in human life and nature. It is not part of human nature as created and as intended to be. It is not human nature. I like the way that great holiness theologian, Otton Wiley, says it very well. He talks in Genesis chapter 3. He said, without, this, without doubt, this historical account of the fall contains a large element of symbolism. It's conditions in the paradisical history of man were characterized by a degree of uniqueness, which was probably more fully understood by our first parents than by us. Such facts as the enclosed garden, the sacramental tree of life, the mystical tree of knowledge, the one positive command Representing the whole law, the serpent form of the tempter, the flaming defenses of forfeited Eden, all were emblems possessing deep spiritual significance as well as facts. In defending the historical character of the mosaic account of the fall, we must not fail to do justice to its rich symbolism. That's what they said. We need to understand very, very well. Humans had the ability to choose. You see, the paradise narrative helps us to understand the real nature of sin. Sin is possible only because man is created in God's image. Let me repeat what I've just said. Sin is possible because man is created in God's image. Man has the freedom of self-assertion, which is a divine endowment from God. Sin comes... When humans use their freedom to measure themselves against God, trying to be independent of God's control. So we see in Genesis chapter 3, the perfect creation, the good creation that God has made, now sin intruded. It's very, very important. And looking at Genesis chapter 3, therefore, it is very clear that sin is no essential part of human experience. It is an intrusion. Ada and Eve did not become fully human because of disobedience to God. If anything, as a result of sin and disobedience, humanity, they became less than humanity was intended to be. We need to understand when we read about our Savior, that he was holy, blameless, and poor, and pure, According to Hebrews 7:26, and yet fully human, we need to know that follows and that seconds the teaching that Genesis chapter 3 shows that sin is no essential part of human experience. And what again do we see when we look at Genesis? We see that sin is a choice. Sin is a choice. Genesis chapter 3 makes that clear. The issue that was placed before Adam and Eve was very clear and unambiguous. God told them in clear terms, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. You see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. All the other trees of the garden were available. Only one of the trees was off limit And sin in this instance, and characteristically throughout scriptures as a whole, is not a question of finiteness or of unavoidable failure. No, let's say it again. Sin is not a matter of finiteness or something of unavoidable failure. It is a question of disobedience or rebellion against God and effort to be like God, and therefore, to be independent of God. And so you see that holiness directly violates the purpose for which God created humanity, because sin breaks that condition of relationship with God. Number three, what do we see? The act of disobedience of falsely claimed self-sovereignty brought estrangement. So number one, sin is an intrusion. Number two, sin is a choice. And number three, sin is a condition. As they never had done before, what do we see Adam and Eve do? Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God in the garden. They were still able to hear the voice of God. Although now they didn't hear joyfully, they had it in fear. Adam and Eve forfeited the relationship for which they have been created and were driven out of the garden and they forfeited access to the tree of life. Physical death was to follow. The sin that brought depravity of the, I mean, they became deprived. So if we use the word depravity of holiness in which humans was created resulted in the depravity of Adam's descendants, they were deprived, and it brought depravity. And then, listen, we're not talking about what some people call total depravity. Depravity, total, totally deprived, yes, but totally depraved, no, not at all. The New Testament tells us about the radical effect of the first sin, and yet there's a hint of something in genesis chapter 5 verse 3 that adam had a son in his own likeness in his own image the image was still god's image don't forget but it was also adam's image without the sanctifying relationship with the creator deprived and now therefore depraved as a branch that is cut off from the vine what do we see the result we see in Genesis chapters 4 to 11, we see the problem of Cain, and we're told for Cain, who killed his brother, he was told sin is locking at the door. Cain had the opportunity. After the fall, Cain could have done something else, but he did not. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4, in the story of Cain, verse 6, After the seemingly arbitrary acceptance of one offering and the rejection of the other, as Cain thought it was, God says, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is locking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You see, for starters, if sin brings total separation from God, This conversation should not have been even happening, should not have been happening at all. Secondly, God seems to imply that Cain is free to choose whether or not to sin. You you ask yourself, how is that possible? If humans in the fall are already hardwired to sin, programmed to rebel, no. Remember we said a few minutes ago, sin is not as a result of finite finiteness, or unavoidable future, or whatever it is. Then, instead of locating sin in Cain's heart as a product of his heredity, God apparently identifies sin as a hostile and bad power external to Cain. So the sequel to the first mother is God still talking to Cain and protecting him from violent death at another's hand. Of course, what happens next? Humans became more and more evil and violent until God decides to send the flood. I mean, what happens? The Cain's descendants become more and more evil and violent until God is forced to send the flood? Well, not exactly. According to Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 22, the descendants of Cain are responsible for all kinds of cultural developments, urban and nomadic lifestyles, agriculture, arts, music, technology, and metallurgy. But on the other side of the family, perhaps, or maybe on both sides, people begin to invoke the name of the Lord. So you see in Genesis four twenty-six through the end of chapter 5, Life goes on serenely for many centuries, with the solitary exception of Lamech, who was a hunter, who was vengeful, who kills a young man and wounding him. But you see, when we get into chapter 6, the tranquility is disrupted by an intrusion into human affairs again. So you see a rapid degeneration into anarchy in verses 1 to 4 which describes the mysterious story of the sons of God and daughters of men. And you see this little problem within these four verses. The Lord decides to curtail human life. Immediately after verse 4, we're told in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind, was very great. And on and on it went. The flood came, annihilates the world's population as You see the narrative, how terrible it was. Noah now comes, sort of, as a new Adam, emerging into a new creation after the waters recede, with a fresh mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The Lord now makes a covenant with Noah, never to repeat the flood, but his estimate of human nature was adjusted downwards the punishment of murder will no longer be exile, as it was with Cain, but execution. An acknowledgement of the fact that, flawed or no flawed, the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. You see that in 8.21. Noah's drunkenness, when he abused the fruit of the vine, almost recapitulates Adam's abuse of the fruit of the tree. And The narratives end with God's purpose for the earth to be populated, being fulfilled, despite the hubris of the builders of the tower in Babel. What are the implications of what we've said so far in this episode? What are the theological implications? The first question is, how holy was the human race prior to the fall? if the essence of human holiness is a right relationship with the Holy God, then one may infer with Augustine that Adam and Eve enjoyed holiness from the outset. But however, as the story of Israel makes clear subsequently, a right relationship must lead to a real resemblance to a Holy God. In this respect, in the times of Irenaeus, humans failed to achieve their potential. Second question is: how sinful were people after the fall? Well, let's say this: sin did not separate people completely from God. Rather, as sin attenuated that relationship, but God continued to communicate and to offer providential care for Adam and Eve, even for Cain. No language is used before chapter 6 to convey an inward disposition to sin at all. Sin is presented as an external malevolent power in the figures of the serpent, the predator that was poised to pounce on Cain, and more deliberately, vain watchers. Holiness was implied of Abel and Seth. It was stated of Enoch and Noah, who are characterized as being righteous, blameless, and walking with God. These words will receive more attention in our next episode. But so far, what we learn is that we are created and made in the image and likeness of God which reinforces what we've been saying so far in the previous episodes, that holiness is a possibility. It's a possibility. Because we are created to be holy, to be in relationship with God. Again, we've also said, sin is a disruption of that relationship. Furthermore, we say that It is possible for God to restore that relationship. And finally, God's goal for humanity has not changed. To be like him. We've gone through all the story of the fall very briefly just to show how sinfulness sin was, how the relationship between God and humans was disrupted and distorted. And yet to know that we are not hapless creatures. We are not pawns in the hands of sin that the grace of God is available to make us what he has created us to be. Be ye holy, God says, even as I, your heavenly Father, I am holy. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any comments or questions, please We'll be glad to hear from you. Again, remain blessed. See you next time. God bless you.